In Galatians chapter 5, the Apostle Paul is discussing how the Galatian Christians ought to understand the implications of our freedom in Christ, especially in the pressure to return to works of the law, as insisted by the Judaizers. To help ensure that the Galatians stand firm against the legalistic error spreading quickly throughout the churches of the region, Paul makes appeal to the doctrine of justification by grace alone, through faith alone, on account of Christ alone, as the basis for the Christian life which Paul describes as walking in the Spirit. Here we see the sharp contrast between the flesh, which is the impulses and the desires of the fallen nature, and the Spirit who now indwells the people of God, securing their union with Christ. Walking in the Spirit, which is tied to the fruit of the Spirit and the balance of the chapter, also entails an intense struggle against the flesh, what we were before coming to faith in Jesus Christ. Now free from the condemnation of the law, the Spirit gives us both the desire and the ability to obey God's commands, especially the love of neighbor. But the indwelling Spirit is opposed by the sinful habits of the flesh, which is that desire to seek self-interest, even if that means biting and devouring our neighbor. And this, after the flesh is no longer dominating us and characterizing us. In Galatians chapter 5, verses 13 through 18, Paul discusses what it means to walk in the Spirit, even as we struggle against the flesh. I'm Kim Riddlebarger, and we are continuing our Blessed Hope podcast series on the book of Galatians. This is episode 11. And our text this time is Galatians chapter 5, verses 13 through 18. As we make our way further into chapter 5 of Galatians, we're looking at that larger section that runs all the way from verse 13 to the end of the chapter, verse 26. But in this episode, we're concentrating on two things, the way of the Spirit being love in verses 13 through 15, and the struggle of the Spirit against the flesh in verses 16 through 18. So let's turn to our text, beginning in chapter 5 at verse 13. You were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you're not consumed by one another. The indicative, that statement of fact that opens verse 13, essentially repeats the indicative imperative of Galatians 5.1, For you were called to freedom, brothers. In typically Pauline fashion, his indicative is followed by an imperative or a command. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. As if anyone hearing this epistle read aloud in the churches of Galatia, 
fail to understand that Christian freedom is the necessary outcome of Paul's gospel. The apostle repeats the point shortly after making it the first time. Only this time, Paul reframes his imperative in response to the accusation coming from the Judaizers in Galatia to the effect that Christian liberty is dangerous because it supposedly circumvents the requirement of obedience to the law. Given the attack upon him and his gospel, Paul must be clear that freedom from the condemnation of the law provides no basis to indulge the flesh. The term flesh, or sarx, has a variety of meanings in Paul's day and plays an important role in Paul's understanding of sin and grace. The term sarx can refer to bodily tissue, especially in the case of circumcision, or to the human body as a whole. Jesus, after all, came in the flesh, as Paul says in Romans 1 verse 3, yet that flesh was empowered by the Spirit, according to Romans 1 verse 4, and that's because of intrinsic human weakness. And since human flesh implies limits, Paul can use the term here as referring to the human condition due to sin that stands in diametrical opposition to the Spirit. The term has been translated in certain instances in English Bibles as sinful nature. In Galatians 5.13, then, Sarx is best understood as a reference to fallen sinners, struggling in their sinfulness and depravity, apart from Christ's redemptive work, and at the same time, striving against the Holy Spirit. It were as though there were two opposing powers duking it out inside, the flesh and the spirit. In this sense, Sarx depicts the universal condition of humanity after the fall of Adam, that is, our sinful human nature, especially the sinful desires of the mind and body, which produce those works of the flesh, which Paul will enumerate in verses 19 to 21 later in this chapter. In light of these two opposing forces, flesh and spirit, Paul is very careful to emphasize that while Christian liberty is a necessary adjunct of the gospel and cannot be separated from the gospel, He's equally clear to point out that Christian liberty cannot be used as an excuse to justify sinful human behavior, which is a desire to satisfy the lusts of the flesh. Now, there's both a negative and positive element in Paul's imperative. The negative sense is that we're not to use our freedom in Christ as a pretense for sinning. The positive command is that we are through love, to serve one another. This is an elaboration of the Apostle's previous comments about true faith leading to works done in love, as he put it in the last part of Galatians chapter 5, verse 6. Christians who are now free from the guilt and power of sin are set free to serve one another just as Christ served us, as we read in the Gospel of John, the 13th chapter, verses 2 through 12. And since love fulfills the law, Christian freedom must not become an excuse for the exercise of sinful passions and lusts. Some have noted the paradoxical nature of Paul's comments, which indicates that while we are free in Christ, we are at the same time to be slaves to one another. In his famous tract on Christian liberty, Martin Luther picked up on this, writing that a Christian is a perfectly free Lord of all, subject to none, A Christian is a perfectly dutiful servant of all. Well, Luther's point is that we're free from the curse of the law and we're free from any requirement to earn justification through works. 
But as Luther puts it elsewhere, and I'm quoting again, Paul warns against the danger of using freedom for selfish purposes. The freedom of a Christian is slavery to love. And that's the end of Luther's quote. Once justified, we are not free to do as we please, which is to indulge the flesh. Rather, we're free to obey the commandments of God since we've been delivered from the realm and the power of the flesh with its opposition to God. We've been set free from the flesh to serve Christ and our neighbor in the Spirit. And as Paul will demonstrate later in the chapter, works of law give way to the fruit of the Spirit. The freedom that Jesus won for us on Calvary and in his life of obedience is a freedom to serve God and our neighbor. And since we do not perform our good works to be justified, but because we are presently justified, believers are unable to serve one another in love because love is said to fulfill the law. Now, our neighbor may not be any more lovable than we are. That's not the point. But since Christ has loved us and given himself for us, we now love one another out of a sense of gratitude for what Christ's life and death has accomplished for us and for our neighbor. In this sense, the love that we are to have each for the other is a fruit of Christian liberty. It's a fruit of our justified status. Slaves cannot love their masters. And cruel masters make it very difficult for their slaves to love anyone. But Christ is now our master. We are his bondservants, and since he is love incarnate, we as his people are free now to love one another, which is demonstrated through serving other divine imagers, other divine image bearers. Since our standing before God is not grounded in our merit, but in Christ's, we can now understand why we are to regard the needs of others as of equal importance to our own. In verse 14, Paul tells us, The whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. This is a kind of theological shorthand, wherein Paul is citing from Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18, the second part, and he is in effect condensing the whole second table of the law commandments 5 through 10, into one short command. Love your neighbor. Now, if we ask the question, who was our neighbor, John Calvin would answer us, the word neighbor covers every living person. We are joined by a common nature. The image of God ought to be an especially sacred bond of union. No distinction is made between friend and foe, for the wickedness of people cannot annul the right of nature. We love our neighbor because our neighbor bears the divine image. Since, as Paul contends, all believers in Jesus are free from works of the law as a means of justification, therefore the Galatian Christians are to live as free men and women and enjoy their Christian liberty. They are free to fulfill the law by loving one another. An ability which Paul will go on to explain later in the chapter comes through the work of the indwelling Holy Spirit. Now, according to what came to be known as the second use of the law, that is, the role of God's law in identifying and exposing our sin, our inability to love our neighbor as we ought condemns us, and that thought should drive us to the cross of Jesus Christ for forgiveness. Not one of us has ever loved his neighbor as himself, not even for a millisecond. For the justified Christian, however, the law 
according to the third use, is fulfilled since free men and women serve one another in love, not to be justified, but because we are justified. And no matter how flawed, and regardless of all our impure motives, all of our works, even the crummy works we do, are acceptable to God because they are covered by Christ's own faultless righteousness. His good works cover our bad works. And so these good works are described here by Paul as a fruit of the Holy Spirit, who inevitably brings forth this fruit in the lives of those who are justified. That's a point Paul's going to make in Galatians 5, verse 22. Love for our brethren and our sistren is at the top of the list of the Spirit's fruit. Let me put it a different way. The same act of faith through which we're justified is a living faith through which the Holy Spirit produces good works as faith's fruit over the course of our lives. The fact that we're free in Christ and released from our bondage to the flesh and indwelt by the Holy Spirit, whom according to Ephesians 1 verse 13, is the down payment of our participation in the age to come, that means that our freedom in Christ will manifest itself in love for other justified sinners and our neighbors, whether they be Christians or not. We've been set free from the tyranny of sin and death so as to serve one another in love. And that's not because we're worth loving, but because Christ loved us first, as we read in John's first epistle, chapter 4, verse 10. And that same Jesus gave himself for us and now indwells us through his Holy Spirit. No doubt, the controversy in Galatia, which provoked Paul's exhortation to serve one another in love and not indulge the flesh, was generated by the bad and false teaching of the Judaizers. It's as a result of their actions that division and dissension have set in, and some among the Galatians are now devouring one another as wild animals would do. As Paul puts it in verse 15, if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you're not consumed by one another. In other words, people are behaving like animals, which is the epitome of being in the flesh. Paul can speak of the leaven of the Judaizers back in verse 9 because their departure from the gospel has spread throughout, producing division and quarreling and wreaking havoc within the Galatian churches. And again, this nasty old irony resurfaces. Those who are most zealous for the law, the Judaizers, are often the ones who are the least concerned about actually obeying it. As evident through their willingness to cause division, it's obvious that the Judaizers regarded the cross of Jesus Christ as an offense. It was offensive to their self-righteousness it opposed their legalism, which the false teachers were attempting to spread throughout the churches by removing the preaching of Christ crucified and returning to works of the law. The cross of Jesus Christ is the public placarding to God's people of the wisdom and the power of God as the only possible means by which our sins can be forgiven. To those who do not know Jesus Christ and boast of their own good works, well, the cross is a scandal. It's a shameful symbol of defeat and finality and shame and embarrassment. When the cross is preached, 
He calls us to come and die to ourselves and not boast in our good works. And that's why Christ's cross is an offense to legalists everywhere and why the preaching of the gospel must be abolished in those circles. The cross reminds the self-righteous that all attempts at good works do not save but only condemn. The cross reminds everyone who hears about Christ crucified that God's wrath and anger must be turned aside if sinners are to enter heaven. It's here that God's wrath against sin and his love for sinners is most clearly revealed. In fact, the cross of Jesus Christ is the clearest picture we have of the love of God for a sinful and rebellious world. The agonizing death of the sinless suffering Savior reminds us of what it costs the Son of God to save us from the guilt of our sins and to satisfy the wrath of God. When Christ's cross is publicly placarded, it's a stumbling block to Jews and it's foolishness to the Greeks. The scriptures plainly tell us that those preaching such a message will be persecuted and that many will have nothing to do with them or the followers of Jesus. The cross clearly represents the narrow way because the cross bids us to come and die to self-righteousness and seek the forgiveness and the righteousness of another, namely the merits of Christ for us. This is why there will always be the temptation to count upon some other message and seek some other emphasis, something less offensive, something a bit more palatable. The wisdom and power of God is an embarrassment to the self-righteous by exposing them for what they are, self-righteous. And so it was inevitable that the Judaizers would attack Paul's gospel of Christ crucified. But when they did so, what was the result? Well, sure, the Judaizers made many converts, and they were quite successful in considering the number of converts they'd made. They're boasting about it, so much so that even Paul was amazed by the speed and the magnitude of their leaven and how it spread. Yet from Paul's perspective, the Judaizers wrought havoc on Christ's church. There's now division, quarreling, backbiting in the church, and people devouring each other like wild animals. People had stooped so low they are actually spying on each other's liberty to see who ate what, hence the issue of table fellowship in Galatians chapter 2. They're concerned about Jewish feast days and who observed them. They're wanting to know what about the Jewish religious rituals. Are the Gentiles actually beginning to follow them? And some were even viciously slandering the Apostle Paul, who was Christ's chosen messenger. It was Jesus who gave Paul his gospel to preach in Galatia. When the offense of the cross is removed, what's gained? Well, more converts through a more acceptable message, perhaps. But what do we lose? We lose the precious freedoms which Jesus Christ died to secure for us. We lose any peace for our troubled consciences which Christ died to comfort. We no longer place our confidence in the power of the gospel to convert non-Christians as our misplaced confidence is now in the flesh and in the works of the law which Paul has told us cannot justify. We lose the God-given ability through love to serve one another. And we become mean-spirited. We become judgmental. We're more concerned with the sanctification of others than with our own struggle to love our neighbors we become Christian cannibals, devouring each other.
If the offense of the cross is abolished, then we lose the very ground of the Christian faith. While the cross is an offense to those who are perishing, the cross is our peace before God. It's our only hope of forgiveness and life eternal. It is in the cross that we see the wisdom and power of God. And in its blessed shadow, there is forgiveness of sin and the promise that God regards us as his children and makes us heirs to all of his glorious promises. The cross of Jesus is everything. And if the offense of the cross be abolished, well, we have nothing worth having. And Paul is going to fight for the gospel. Through the years, I've heard way too many preachers and Bible teachers discuss walking in the Spirit in terms that are much different than Paul does here in Galatians chapter 5. Paul gives us an imperative, a command to walk in the Spirit, but surprisingly doesn't give us a corresponding list of do's and don'ts other than to tell us to focus upon fulfilling the law by striving to love our neighbor. Paul also explains why so often we feel as though there were a traitor inside who would rather commit sin than love another. Here Paul discusses the contrast and the struggle between the flesh and the spirit. And getting that contrast right is fundamental to living a healthy, Christ-centered, spirit-filled Christian life. And we'll continue to wrestle with that contrast momentarily. I hope you are enjoying our series on the book of Galatians. Show notes for this and other episodes of the Blessed Hope Podcast can be found on my blog. Look for the Blessed Hope Podcast at the top of the page. The blog is the Riddle blog at kimriddlebarger.com, kimriddlebarger, all lowercase, one word, kimriddlebarger.com. Look for the Blessed Hope Podcast at the very top of the page. Now, show notes are intended to provide background information for each specific episode. On my blog, you'll find links to years of sermons, a number of lectures on a variety of subjects, information about my books, as well as a number of publications that are unique to my blog and posted nowhere else. I'm always adding new stuff. Most recent uh, musings section in which I provide information that I think might be of interest, along with some personal opinions and ideas and musings. So please check out the new blog. It's kimriddlebarger.com, all lowercase, one word, kimriddlebarger.com, known as the Riddle Blog. Now, you can really help me out by telling your friends about the Blessed Hope podcast and encourage them to listen. As we get closer to the end of the series, I am still wrestling with whether or not to utilize one or more of the various podcasting options that are available. I'm open to suggestions. Some of you have already sent some good ones, but continue to send them my way. And you can do that through the Contact Me section of my blog. Again, kimriddlebarger.com, all lowercase one word, kimriddlebarger.com. You can also leave me feedback at the Riddle blog in that Contact Me section. Feedback is really helpful. I've gotten a fair bit of it. I really appreciate it. I've incorporated a lot of it into the uh, format of the uh, segments and episodes, as you've probably noticed, if you were the ones who sent the suggestions. Please feel free to ask any questions you'd like me to address in future podcasts. I've gotten several good questions from some of you, but a bunch more would be really great to flush out and fulfill an episode of just questions and answers. Now, here goes my endless loop on this subject, but please read through the book of Galatians in its entirety at least once. If you have an audio Bible, listen to Galatians read in its entirety. 
I think you'll find that really helpful. So find a nice quiet spot, a good chair, bring your Bible and read through the book of Galatians in one sitting. It's a great practice to get into. And I also think it's very helpful just to hear it read aloud. And now it's back to our discussion of the flesh and the spirit and walking in the spirit in Galatians chapter 5, verses 16 through 18. So let's go through the remainder of our text, verses 16 through 18 of Galatians chapter 5. But I say, walk in the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now, in the face of these attacks made upon the gospel by the Judaizers, several times in this chapter, Paul exhorts the Galatians to dig in and stand firm in the freedom won for them by Jesus Christ. He does this in verse 1 and in verse 13. And that's no small thing for the apostle to repeat himself twice that emphatically. When discussing the Christian life throughout the fifth chapter here of Galatians, Paul tells his hearers that although we're justified by grace alone, through faith alone, and on account of Christ alone, the faith through which they're justified is also a faith that works in love. Paul also specifies that the law, obedience to which cannot justify, is fulfilled through our obedience to the command to love our neighbor. But the power to fulfill the law is not our own. It must be given to us through the indwelling Holy Spirit so that we walk by the Spirit so as not to gratify the desires of the flesh. Paul's critics in Galatia, the Judaizers who took advantage of his absence, they're accusing him of preaching one gospel, that of faith alone to the Gentiles, and another that circumcision is required to the Jews. But if Paul were really doing such an obvious and hypocritical thing, Why then is he still being persecuted? The Judaizers have repeatedly told the Galatians that Paul's doctrine of justification is positively dangerous, since supposedly it leads to license, which is why the Judaizers are snooping around the Galatian churches and spying especially on Gentile liberty. The Judaizers have accused Paul of being an antinomian, that is, he's against law by slandering the apostle claiming that he had no regard for circumcision, the law of Israel, or the tradition of the fathers. And having given his hearers a lesson in redemptive history at the end of Galatians chapter 4, in Galatians 5, here Paul now rebuts the ways in which he and the gospel have been misrepresented in light of Israel's own history. And so we're to live our lives in light of Jesus Christ's saving work. The Christian life which springs from faith in Jesus is walking by the Spirit. But what exactly does it mean to walk in the Spirit? In verses 16 to 18 of Galatians chapter 5, Paul contrasts the work of the Holy Spirit in producing the fruit of the Spirit, which is characteristic of the Christian, with the works brought forth from the flesh, which is our opposition to Christ and his Spirit. And so Paul describes every Christian's intense struggle with sin as a war between what we were in Adam, flesh, 
and what we presently are in Christ, walking in the Spirit. Paul emphatically tells the Galatians that they were called by God to be free, but he warns them that they're not to use that freedom as an excuse to indulge the flesh through sinful opposition to God. Instead, they were to use their freedom in Christ to serve one another in love, as we've just read, and not devour each other as wild animals would do. As is his custom, Paul follows these comments with an imperative or a command in verse 16. But I say, walk by the Spirit. Now that theme dominates this section of the letter and what follows. To walk is an Old Testament figure of speech descriptive of how one lives one's life, as in Exodus chapter 18, verse 20, when Moses tells the Israelites, And you shall warn them about the statutes and laws, and make them know the way in which they must walk and what they must do. Well, here Paul is effectively elaborating upon that passage, stating that the one who walks in the Spirit will not gratify the desires of the flesh. And since the verb to walk, peripateo, is in the present tense, Paul means that this is something we do continually. Paul exhorts us to walk by the Spirit as a habit of life, continuously, because in doing so, we will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Now note well, Paul's not talking about something that's optional, that Christians can choose to walk after the flesh or after the Spirit, as though that were an option to us, and those who want to attain victory live in the Spirit, those who don't care, carnal Christians live in the flesh. Rather, Paul is saying that Christians do walk in the Spirit, and they don't walk in the flesh. In fact, life in the Spirit is not a choice. It's a characteristic of all those who are justified through faith. Whereas before conversion, they were dominated by the flesh, now that they're in Christ, they walk according to the Spirit. Sin used to be what characterized them. They lived according to the flesh. Now sin is an exception and their consciences are convicted when they sin. There are several very loud Old Testament echoes here. Throughout the prophets, the promise of life in the Spirit would be manifest in the coming Messianic age with the new covenant yet to dawn. More specifically, this is a major theme in the prophecies of Jeremiah, especially chapter 31, verses 31 through 34, this promise of a new covenant, and in Ezekiel chapter 36 through 37, when Ezekiel speaks of the work of the Holy Spirit in the age to come, giving life to the dead bones. As B.B. Warfield elaborates on this, and this is going to be a long quote, but I really think it's worth reading. It's just a part of a larger section from his article, The Spirit of God in the Old Testament. In the Messianic times, Isaiah tells us, the Spirit shall be poured out from on high with the effect that judgment shall dwell in the wilderness and righteousness shall abide in the peaceful field. And he cites Isaiah 32, verse 15. It is in such descriptions of the Messianic era as the time of the reign of the Spirit in the hearts of the people that the opulence of his saving influences is developed. Says Warfield, It is he who shall gather the children of God into the kingdom so that no one shall be missing. It is he who, as the source of all blessings, shall be poured out on the seed with the result that it shall spring up in luxurious growth 
and bear such rich fruitage that one shall cry, I am the Lord's, and another shall call himself by the name of Jacob, and another shall write on his hand unto the Lord, and shall surname himself by the name of the Lord. And he's quoting Isaiah 44, verse 3. Warfield goes on. In his abiding presence, which constitutes the preeminent blessing of the new covenant which Jehovah makes with his people in the day of redemption, and as for me, this is my covenant with them, says the Lord, my spirit that is upon thee, and my words which I put in thy mouth, shall not depart out of thy mouth, nor out of thy mouth of thy seed, nor out of the mouth of thy servant's seed, says the Lord, from henceforth and forever. And here he's quoting Isaiah 59, verse 21. And he ends by saying, The gift of the Spirit is an abiding presence in the heart of the individual as the crowning messianic blessing. What a great summary of a larger article on just exactly what the Holy Spirit will do in the age to come when seen from the perspective of Israel's prophets. Now, under the Old Covenant, the law was considered an external code of conduct written on stone, a list of rules set down in the two tables of the law, which reflect the perfections of Yahweh. Now, when the Holy Spirit is given to all of God's people in the New Covenant era as promised, with the coming of Jesus Christ and the outpouring of the Spirit at Pentecost, the law, notice, is now said to be written upon our heart as an inward principle through the abiding work of the Spirit. The law hasn't changed, but our relationship to the law has. Now, the Old Testament expectation of a new covenant was in part that the Messianic age would be characterized as the age when the law would be written on each heart because the Spirit would indwell each believer. And so the two things, the law written upon the heart and the indwelling Holy Spirit, well, they necessarily go together. Those who are called to be free in Christ are also called to walk in the Spirit. We're not to let sin reign in our lives because we're no longer in the flesh. Paul is clearly talking about the third use of the law when an imperative, a command, follows the indicative statement of fact, as in Galatians 5.13. Since we are called to be free, which is an indicative, we are to walk in the freedom that is given us by the Spirit, and that is the imperative. Paul's point is, our freedom in Christ is not to be abused. Our freedom in Christ does not mean free from rules, but freedom to obey the law of God. As Paul stated earlier back in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. And so Paul is fleshing out this notion of a life empowered for good works because we're united to Christ through the indwelling Holy Spirit. And so for Paul, the old Pharisee, he's dead and gone. The regenerate Paul is now alive to God, alive to his commandments. And that's why in 2 Corinthians 3.17, Paul can say, Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. To walk by the Spirit is living out the freedom we have in Christ. We are free to obey God's commandments because we're not obedient in order to be justified, but because we are justified. That point deserves to be made again and again, as I've tried to do. 
Since we are indwelt by the Spirit of freedom, the Holy Spirit directs our entire course of life as revealed to us in the Word of God. We're free from the things that once enslaved us, the curse of the law, free from the tyranny of sin, says Paul. Now we're free to serve one another in love. Just as Jesus had promised in John 8, 36, if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Nowhere in this discussion does Paul give us a list of things to do, nor does he hint or imply that walking in the Spirit will be easy. Paul never tells us that walking in the Spirit will be able to subdue all manifestations of the sinful nature in our lives, that's the flesh, or attain a state of Christian perfection, some sort of holy living or just above it all, as taught by John Wesley in his plain account of Christian perfection. The sinful nature of the flesh is not eradicated at the moment of regeneration, but that sinful nature of the flesh is cut off from its source of life because of the indwelling Holy Spirit. And so the flesh will slowly, but surely, wither and die, and that's a process which is complete at the time of our death or the return of the Lord, whichever comes first. And so although a defeated foe, the flesh will nevertheless fight a determined guerrilla war within us until we die or until Christ comes back, as Paul tells us in verse 17, a point we'll take up momentarily. The critical question then is, how do we walk in the Holy Spirit? How do we do this? Well, in the confessional form tradition, the work of the Spirit is often connected to specific means, the so-called means of grace, which include the preached word and the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper. We walk in the Spirit by taking avail of the means of grace which God has given us. And so the Spirit works in and through the Word. When it's read or when it's preached or when it's studied, the Spirit convicts us of sin. He reveals God's will to us. And He continually points us back to the sufficiency of Jesus' death for our many sins. That's what the Spirit does through the Word. The Holy Spirit reminds us through the preached word that Christ's righteousness covers our own unrighteousness. The indwelling Spirit convicts us of sin. He motivates us to pray. The Holy Spirit enables us to live in freedom by serving one another in love as a result of this mysterious union that exists between ourselves and the other members of Christ's church formed into one body as together we're conformed to that image of Christ. But we can't fulfill Paul's imperative by merely redoubling our efforts, or by using spiritual technology in a futile attempt to reach a higher level of victorious living, or to find a more intense Christian experience. Walking in the Spirit is participating in the ordinary means of grace, the Word and the Sacrament, as well as such things as prayer and fellowship and the service of our neighbor. The result of utilizing these means which are given us by God is steady growth in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ, along with progressive conformity to the image of Christ. We do not satisfy the desires of the flesh when we take a veil of the means God has given. But if we focus upon stopping the desires of the flesh, apart from these chosen means, then we're only going to fuel the fire, as Paul implies in Romans 7-8. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. 
for apart from the law, sin lies dead. And so here we have to be very careful not to confuse cause with effect. In a parallel discussion, Romans 8 verses 1 through 17, Paul contrasts life in the spirit and life in the flesh in more detail. The contrast Paul sets out in Romans 8 is, again, not an option for a Christian to walk in the flesh or walk in the spirit as a victorious Christian in contrast to a carnal Christian. The contrast between flesh and spirit is a contrast between believer and unbeliever. All Christians walk by the Spirit. That's a defining characteristic of what it means to be a Christian. While all non-Christians walk in the flesh as unregenerate. That's their characteristic. They are in the flesh. Paul puts it this way in Romans 8, verses 8 to 9. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. So the contrast between a Christian and a non-Christian in Paul's thinking here is obvious. But if that's true, why is the Christian life such a struggle? Well, in Galatians 5.17, Paul makes clear what's been implied previously. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh, for these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. That sounds like my ordinary and daily Christian life. And that explains in part why it seems so difficult to actually do what Paul has commanded in the previous verse. While we are exhorted to walk by the Spirit and not let sin reign in our mortal bodies, the reason we so often do not obey the laws we should is because the sinful nature and the Spirit are opposed to each other. The normal, indeed healthy Christian life is characterized by an intense struggle with indwelling sin. This is the remnants of the flesh and its habits. This is a strong parallel to Paul's comments in Romans chapter 7, verses 14 to 25. In that passage, Paul describes his present struggle with sin as an apostle, the struggle with sin that he experiences day by day. The normal Christian life, as one characterized by struggle with indwelling sin, is not a life of immediate victory over all sin and all sinful habits that supposedly is achieved by some, the super saints. The Christian life is one of slow, sustained, and at times painful progress. But all of Christ's people reach the appointed goal, which is conformity to the image of Jesus. Sadly, Christians are often told that the struggle with sin and any perception of a lack of victory or a lack of continual progress, well, those are reasons to doubt the assurance of their salvation. But it's only a Christian dwelt by God's Spirit who experiences a struggle between the flesh and the Spirit, this struggle with indwelling sin. Non-Christians live in the flesh. Non-Christians do not have an intense struggle with the sinful nature and the indwelling Holy Spirit. God's Spirit is not provoking internal conflict within them. They feel guilt externally. They feel bad about things they know they did wrong, but they don't have an internal struggle, flesh versus the Spirit. The struggle with sin is perhaps the clearest sign that somebody's actually converted. And that's why we have to draw the assurance of our salvation and of God's favor toward us from the promises given us in the Scripture rather than attempting to draw assurance from our own personal progress and holiness.
Indeed, some of those who have progressed the farthest in sanctification are oftentimes the most dissatisfied with the progress they're making in the Christian life. And so assurance must be drawn primarily from that promise in Scripture that God will save all those who call upon his name, that God will save sinners, and that the Spirit witnesses to those promises, and only secondarily from our own personal progress in the Christian life. Yes, we'll make progress, but at times it's really difficult to gauge. And that's why we must hear the law and the gospel on a continual basis and not moralistic expectations to do better and try harder. The law excites and gives life to sin. It exposes our need for a Savior, as we saw in Romans chapter 7. As Christians, the law is written on our hearts, yet the sinful flesh which remains, it resonates with the law's demands. And that's why we must hear the external proclamation of God's favor toward us in Jesus Christ, the absolution or declaration of the forgiveness of sins, or else we'll have little hope of forgiveness for repeated and constant offenses against God. If someone is overcome by guilt, they need to hear the gospel. If someone is apathetic or indifferent to their sin, well then they need the law. Moralism, on the other hand, consists of watered-down imperatives designed not to expose sin, but to give us principles for making ourselves better. Nothing is more poisonous to the soul than moralistic preaching. Like New Year's resolutions, we don't keep those rules for long. And our failure to keep law-light moralistic rules only frustrates us, and as Paul pounds home in this letter, Christianity is primarily a religion of rescue and redemption, and only secondarily a religion of morality and ethics. Well, in verse 18, Paul repeats his original assertion that he'd made back in verse 16. If you're led by the Spirit, adding that you're not under the law. Now, it's important to very carefully spell out what Paul means when he says we are not under law. And there are three ways in which those who are in the Spirit are not, in fact, under law. First, Paul means that we no longer suffer the law's curse for our infractions of God's revealed will. Remember Galatians 3.13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. The curse was removed through the death of Jesus, for us. Second, we're no longer under the slavery of the law. Paul made this point in Galatians 3.22, Galatians 3.25, and in the first three verses of chapter 4. That's because Christ has set us free from such slavery, the theme here in Galatians 5, verse 1 and verse 13. And then third, we are given freedom from all those things indifferent, the adiaphora, things that are not expressly forbidden in Scripture. We're free from the rules of men. The Spirit gives us life. The Spirit gives us freedom, things the law cannot do. Although we're not under the law as a means of justification, that doesn't in any sense mean that Christians are not to strive to obey the law. Look, Paul's not a dispensationalist who argues that the law was for a previous dispensation and therefore the New Testament is the age of grace and the law is no longer binding. He doesn't say that. 
all 10 of the commandments are reaffirmed in the New Testament as binding. And so the reformers were correct, and I think helpful, to speak of a second and a third use of the law. What Paul is talking about is that because we are justified by grace alone, through faith alone, on account of Christ alone, yes, you can repeat the slogan after me and with me, we are free from obedience to the law as a means of justification according to the second use of the law. The law shows us our sin. But this also means that we're now free to obey the law according to the third use. And we do so out of gratitude because we are presently justified. Now we can serve one another in love because we know that this fulfills the law. This is how we demonstrate our gratitude. And this is the Spirit's work in our lives, not our own accomplishment. Now, we're wise to listen to both Luther and Calvin on this, so let's wrap up by listening to the two magister reformers. And let's start with Luther from his lecture on Galatians. If you are led by the Spirit, you owe the law nothing. God mercifully pardons us for failing to do what we want to do in the Spirit. Yet, we're not quite pure spirits ourselves, but are led by the Spirit and forgiven accordingly. And he goes on, The rule of the Spirit is so powerful that the law cannot accuse us for the sin that is in us. Christ our righteousness is beyond reproach and cannot be accused by the law. As long as we cling to him, we are led by the Spirit and are free from the law. And then Calvin, we'll give him the last word this time. This is from his commentary in the book of Galatians. Although believers stumble in the way of the Lord, they should not be discouraged because they want to satisfy the law. They need comforting words, like the ones we find here. What they lack is not counted against them, but their duties are accepted by God as if they were full and complete in every respect. Wow, to know that my crummy, rotten, good works, attempts at good works, are covered by the righteousness of Christ, and therefore God delights in them. That's pretty good news. Now, next time, we're going to continue this discussion because we're going to look at the fruit of the flesh in contrast to the fruit of the Spirit as we take up the balance of the chapter and finish up our discussion on Paul's contrast between the flesh and the Spirit. Thanks much for listening to The Blessed Hope, and until next time, Maranatha, the Lord come.